So again, a disconnect, right? You've got the pressure, like, don't lease a new space, don't invest the capital there. But it's kind of the best time ever. I'm Carl Siebrecht. I'm Ben Dean. And I'm Jordan Lawrence. And this is the Logistics Leadership Podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to the Logistics Leadership Podcast. Once again, I am joined here with my colleagues, Jordan Lawrence and Ben Dean. Guys, it's great to be back with you here on the pod. Great to be with you, Carl. Ben, good to see you again. Likewise, Jordan. Let's do this. So the topic for the day is the state of the warehousing market, a very, very meaty topic and one that is obviously near and dear to our hearts. Uh, Jordan, what's your perspective? How do we kick this one off? Carl, that's right. We've got a lot of passion around this topic. Um, I think there's a great theme that we can unpack as we go here. And Melinda McLaughlin, the guest uh, today, is going to really provide some unique perspectives on given that she is an economist. And that theme is long and variable lags. This is usually a phrase that refers to monetary policy. However, it acutely applies to the warehousing market, given that there is first a demand impulse, and then that's followed in the warehousing market by construction, which can take six months to two years and naturally lends itself to long and variable lags. Yeah, for today's episode, I think Flex's network offers a unique vantage point because we represent 2,000 plus warehouse operators. We're going to be able to get access to some data points that exist outside of the traditional leasing market about the state of play in warehouse. So excited to be able to bring that to bear. Let's kick this off with my conversation with Melinda McLaughlin, who is the global head of research at Prologis. As our listeners probably already know, Prologis is the world's largest owner of warehouses with over a billion square feet globally of warehouse space. So I'm super excited to get Melinda's perspective on the state of the warehousing market. So let's do it. Melinda, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I would love to start if we could, uh, if you wouldn't mind just giving us a little bit of your background. Absolutely. So as you mentioned, I'm global head of research. So I oversee a global team and I've been with Prologis since 2015. It's been quite an interesting time in the industry. But my um, background is, you know, I studied economics, real estate. I did consulting for nearly eight years through the global financial crisis. So I've just found my way to a lot of different roles that allow me to continue learning, growing and studying what's interesting. That's fantastic. If we could just start at the very high level, give us a sense, is the market today for warehousing, is it more of a tenants or landlords market and why? It's a good question. I think the question, right? Um, and my unsatisfying answer is it really depends. Mm -hmm. So high level in most places, it's definitely easier to find space today than it was a year or two ago. Um, pandemic era scarcity was extreme due to a high level of demand and difficulty bringing on supply at the same time to meet that demand. But today we stand at about 4.8% vacant space in the U.S. market in aggregate. So it's still really a landlord's market. That's low relative to history where we've seen throughout cycles about a 6%, a little bit above that um, vacancy rate. That said, Today, we are seeing better opportunities for occupiers as projects that were started about 12 or 18 months ago are finally coming online. 
However, new supply is highly concentrated. So it's located in specific markets, even specific sub-markets, and even size categories. So your experience out there is really going to depend on what you're looking for. Okay. Okay. So uh, we've seen some bounce back from the COVID uh, era, which was a bit extreme, um, but it's still a pretty tight market. Um, so maybe could we peel into some of those uh, subsectors that you referred to? There are some particular markets and or sizes that might be tighter, um, harder to find space than in others. Could you give it a little more color on that? Absolutely. Um, so if we look back, remembering the surge in sales and then the subsequent shortage and then surge in inventories, that really resulted in bigger being better in most locations. So developers of logistics real estate responded to that demand accordingly. So today, again, because it takes a while to bring that building online, today occupiers that are looking for larger spaces in outlying submarkets of inland locations, so these are markets like Dallas, Atlanta, Chicago, Houston, and Phoenix, they might find some better opportunities there. Um, on the other hand, we're still seeing like acute scarcity in some markets, especially those with high barriers to new supply. Places like Toronto, the Lehigh Valley in Pennsylvania, Las Vegas. Um, we even still see really low vacancies in some smaller markets like Portland and Reno. Um, if you get down even to the submarket level, in these large metros, there's essentially no new deliveries of kind of smaller urban infill product. Um, so as we see customers kind of turn back to revenue generation and try to get close to end consumers, we expect to see some persistent scarcity in those types of units as well. Interesting. Okay. Very helpful. And so then if we turn to new construction, kind of the state of new construction, would it be safe to assume that in some of these areas that you just described as being a bit tight? Are those where new developers are looking to invest in new capacity or is that not necessarily the case? Like what is the state of new uh, construction and what are the underlying drivers of, of those investments? Well, I think there's the longer term trajectory and the driver would be, I think the availability of land and the difficulty in navigating some of these regulatory hurdles. So both of those things have become more difficult over time. So when I talk about kind of smaller urban infill spaces, I'm in San Francisco, so getting kind of as close as you can to the city center, extremely difficult to bring new product online. First of all, all the land is spoken for. Second, it's if there is a building that you could maybe redevelop, reposition, it's very expensive. And then the regulatory hurdles to make that happen, especially for logistics real estate, which unfortunately is nobody's favorite land use, can just make it nearly impossible to bring on new product. So while we definitely see demand, you know, last cycle and expecting kind of to return that way in the next cycle, being concentrated in those areas, there really isn't an ability to bring on new supply. So the new construction is still, I think, calibrated to the pandemic era trends, where again, it was kind of bigger, there was less urgency as far as being close to end consumers and more emphasis placed on being close to ports of entry and along those transportation routes. Okay, so that, and those, those dynamics are playing out still currently. Uh, in terms of where you see more of the new investment uh, being being developed? 
I think because, again, there's a lag sort of when you start it, and that lag had grown over the pandemic. So the average time it takes to deliver a building had been lengthening. So yeah, absolutely, developers were concentrated on pandemic-era demand trends. Bigger spaces that can handle a lot of activity right on those transportation routes. Because the way I put it, you know, at that time, that was the primary concern of supply chains, right? Getting your hands on the goods. Once you had things to sell because demand was so high and, you know, there was so much disruption and dysfunction in supply chains, you know, that's where we saw kind of no discounting, right? Um, You could have longer delivery times. Consumers would wait for it. And it really reflected itself on the logistics market. As we look to the future, you know, my major kind of cutting edge trend that I'm watching is this return to revenue generation, to competing for revenue. So that happens through service levels, making sure you have the goods consumers want, a lot of choice, reliability, and then competing on service levels like delivery times, fast ones, white glove service, all those elements that make up for a superior customer experience. Because again, during the pandemic, I think retailers in particular had a lot of wiggle room with consumers. In an era of shortage, you're just happy to have um, the good that you want to buy. Right. So in that potential trend of, of return to revenue growth in the warehousing market, does that mostly manifest itself in uh, direct consumer e-commerce fulfillment facilities? Or does that also extend into uh, more traditional brick and mortar retail distribution capabilities as well? I think it it extends across supply chains. So to have that superior omni-channel experience. So we talk a lot about the future of retail. It is 100% omni-channel. It's tech-enabled. It's transparent. It's visible. We're seeing more that it's sustainable. All of these things, again, probably weren't a top priority over the last couple of years because of the supply chain disruptions. Today, It's direct to consumer, so getting close to end consumers for last mile delivery and operations like that. But in the brick and mortar space, you see it through kind of really strategic placing of inventory and, again, making sure you have that built out, flexible, and tech and data enabled network. Makes sense. Makes sense. Let me shift gears just a a little bit, kind of on the same broader topic, but you hear a lot, read a lot um, over the past couple, few quarters of onshoring or nearshoring. It seems to be a, a trend. Do you see any impact on the warehousing market, let's just say in the U.S. today, that is um, being impacted or being driven by that onshoring or nearshoring shift? I think it's early, okay. um, but we've definitely dug into this. So we we are watching the way production shifts around. Um The direct effect in our business is most visible in Mexico. Um, So we've studied this. It's a big demand multiplier there. And so we're seeing really ultra-low vacancy rates and strong rent growth along the border as a result. Mm -hmm. In the U.S., it's a little more nuanced because it's so highly targeted at certain industries. In a specific example, we looked at the impact of TSMC, so the semiconductor investment in Phoenix. Obviously, this is still unfolding in real time. But the early data we found um, suggests that it's going to lead to, yes, an incremental uptick in demand for leased space in this market. But I think the bigger effect is going to be the removal of land and buildings from the competitive base. So when you think about manufacturing, these are really mission-critical facilities, high fit-out, often very customized. And 
manufacturers prefer to own these facilities. So as we looked at RFPs in the market in Phoenix that were related to semiconductor manufacturing, really only about a million square feet was at least space that they were looking for. At least 12 million square feet of RFPs were for purchase. So either land purchase or building purchase. So that means for those logistics customers who might want to expand in that market, they're going to face less choice because a lot of that vacant land or vacant buildings will be sucked up by this manufacturing activity. And that's just the direct effect. Then, you know, as this unfolds, we're going to study the effects on consumption, the labor market, and the local economy. And we could see an additional boost there. And so net-net, you know, those aren't big numbers for the U.S. market in aggregate. And again, it's going to be very highly targeted by location, highly targeted by industry. But where we expect to see that show up is actually in a worse availability of land and buildings for logistics uses in some of these micro locations. Right. And potentially, and this came up in our other other conversation, it's potentially also competition for labor. Absolutely. So where specifically in the U.S., where are you seeing the greatest increases in rent? We saw rent growth continue through 2023 in most of our markets. Um, Where we saw the strongest momentum was really along the Sun Belt in parts of the Mid-Atlantic and maybe surprisingly in the Northern California region. I know this is a U.S. focused group, but Europe and Mexico also have really good momentum. Looking forward a little bit, what are some of the risks that you're watching most closely? Well, I'm sure I'm completely unique here, but I'll be watching the Fed um, and consumers. And I think, you know, the Fed is one of those things that I think most people try not to do too much predicting about. Um, But as we look at consumers, I think there's positive and negative risks that we're watching. So on the positive side, we have wage growth exceeding inflation again. So that's been one reason why, you know, as recently as September, we've been surprised to the upside on retail sales. So that's not pent up savings. That's real purchasing power growth. And it's supported by a lot of underlying demographic trends. Millennials are now in their 30s and 40s. That's peak spending that boosts goods consumption. Wage growth has been really strong kind of for the lower and middle income households. And those households tend to translate wage growth more directly to spending and spend more on goods versus higher income households. So there's a lot happening that, you know, could be seen as optimistic for users of logistics real estate and the flow of goods. You know, on the negative side, we're definitely watchful for kind of the delayed impacts of higher interest rates. Energy costs are on the rise again. And then there's a few areas of government support that are ending, such as the resumption of student loan payments. So we're going to be watching those risks on the margin. And then naturally, at the end of the day, what the Fed does is going to impact both consumers and businesses. So again, I'm probably not unique here, but I really think right now it's about the cycle and really calibrating expectations to uh, consumer health. Right. Consumer health. Consumers are what, two-thirds of the U.S. economy or something like that. It's about, about that. Okay. So then as we think about what's coming in 2024, I mean, one thing that strikes me in listening to your observations is there's a bit of a balance at play here. On the one hand, we're seeing a return to revenue focus, trying to serve consumers better to maybe drive some market share gains. And then on the other side, uh, given the puts and takes around the economy, broadly speaking, you know there are a lot of businesses that are still kind of in a wait and see mode. 
do those things translate into sort of your view into 2024? Is it still some puts and takes or what should we expect for, for the year to come? Absolutely. I think that economic growth in the cycle matters a lot right now. I think stepping back to what changes things in our business, it's really that supply chain prioritization. So the order of operations, what's most important to everybody out there trying to operate a distribution network. Um, And I think right now there's a disconnect between what you need near term and what you need long term. So in the near term, what we're seeing is absolutely higher interest rates. It's got putting increased scrutiny on capital expenditures. And that just makes it harder to adapt supply chains for long-term structural needs, particularly as we see, you know, market conditions aren't poised to get that much easier through the near term. And we can dig into that in a moment. But on the structural side, you know, that return for competing for revenues as a focus, that's what you should be thinking about for the long-term. Consumers increasing their standards, and making those supply chain investments that can yield better customer service. And at the end of the day, I think it's those investments that are going to separate the winners and losers over the long term. So what I see and hear from customers is they're really trying to navigate a lot of pressure in the near term so that they can adapt, have better resilience in their supply chain. Because you know, I don't think we're going back to the just-in-time very uneventful world that we used to operate in. But, you know, in the near term, it is a challenging environment just from an interest rate perspective. Yeah. I love that framing. There's just a disconnect. And and this resonates so vividly with uh, conversations we have with our customers as well. In the near term, there is this fairly fraught environment to navigate with interest rates, with uncertainty around consumer spending, and just the drivers of your own top line. But an absolute high level of conviction around we have got to evolve our supply chains to be more resilient, more digital as a means to that end, more sustainable as well. And so how do I navigate this near-term concern with the medium to long-term upside and opportunity there is for us? I know you don't have a crystal ball and you're an economist, but how does this play out over the coming years? You know, the, the, the macro economy gets better sooner than later, right? It returns to norms. And then uh, investment in supply chains probably starts to accelerate to get these longer-term outcomes we need. Is that a too simplistic way to paint the picture? How would you give us some color around that? I don't think it's too simplistic. I mean, at the end of the day, one reason I love economics is it's just about supply and demand. <laughs> um, so it can always be boiled down pretty simply. And what we're seeing, you know, and I think it's important to understand is, you know, the demand side is what everybody's watching. That's interest rates and consumers and um, confidence. But on the supply side, the things that have been happening with interest rates and kind of continued pressure on costs, um, whether it's labor, you know, the materials uh, competition for those manufacturing facilities and the infrastructure investment has kept construction costs high. So in my space, logistics, real estate, we're actually seeing some pretty dramatic things on the supply side as well to consider where starts, so kind of new groundbreakings of new buildings are down 65% relative to kind of the peak levels of last year and continue to fall. A lot of that has to do with interest rates, but it's really the rent you need to justify the risk of breaking ground on a new speculative building, that equation has just fundamentally shifted and very, very quickly. 
So as we see this playing out, that scrutiny on capital expenditures, maybe a little bit of uncertainty about the sales outlook, that's causing a lot of these expansion decisions to be delayed, kind of kicked down the road. And what we're undergoing in the logistics real estate market is a wave of completions. So now is actually probably the best time in quite a while to be out there, especially leasing new space. So again, a disconnect, right? You've got the pressure, like don't lease a new space, don't invest the capital there, but it's kind of the best time ever because after that, because new groundbreakings have fallen so quickly, that faucet's going to get cut off. And we think that's going to happen kind of late 2024. And that could reintroduce a lot of scarcity and sort of at the time many customers and companies will start to feel comfortable again investing for the long term, there might not be as much optionality out there in the market. You know, I think I'm pretty honest with my advice to those looking to lease space. Take advantage of the next four quarters because there is a drop-off in new supply coming that we can see quite visibly in the numbers that Again, all of this is kind of going back to the same thing, which I think was that sharp increase in interest rates we saw beginning in 21 or after the end of 21. Right, right. Okay. So also on the supply side, I want to come back to something you mentioned a little while ago about just some fundamental elements of scarcity in some markets. Like there's just not much land left or the land that is there is too expensive for its use as a distribution asset. So what happens with that? What is the three, five out year or beyond supply side outcome of that? Do we get inland empires outside of a bunch of additional cities? Where does this go? I don't know for certain, Uh but there are a few things I've seen in my time studying this industry. One is pricing just responds, right? If there's enough demand in an area, pricing needs to respond to make development or redevelopment appropriate. So A couple examples that Prologis has done specifically are those multi-story warehouses in places like Seattle and New York and LA. Um, So those are places where land is very dear. There's a lot of supply chain um, activity and there's a real benefit to being close in, avoiding the congestion, getting close to that end consumer, those high income households. So one option is pricing response and with you know a big lag because these projects take a very long time to get entitled and navigate those regulatory hurdles, there might be um, some additional more functional supply that comes online. But it'll be small because, again, this is an incredibly difficult operation. You need a long timeline. You need good relationships with the local community and regulators. And I think that's been another facet of the environment that's been so interesting to watch over the last eight plus years that I've been at this company. And it's really the resurgence and proliferation of kind of anti-warehouse regulatory sentiment. So a lot of resistance, even in sort of traditional logistics hubs like the Inland Empire. We see it today in New York, New Jersey, Maryland, Pennsylvania, Seattle. And most recently, and this really surprised me, um, there's been some pushback in Dallas as well. And that's typically an environment where, you know, anything sort of goes. Um, There seems to be a little bit more growth-friendly sentiment, but there is starting to be this broader movement that's going to make it more and more difficult to bring product online. Hmm. So at the end of the day, I don't know actually where this supply is going to come from because there's a ton of demand 
for not just more space, but more sophisticated space, space that can incorporate technology, space that can help companies meet their net zero goals, space that can adapt to, you know, if transportation changes with the electrification of fleets. Those types of products today are completely undersupplied. And I don't know that the world will adapt enough to really make it fully balanced in the future. That makes sense. Uh, Melinda, this has been fantastic. I feel so much smarter now than I felt at the beginning of our conversation. Great insights on the market for our listeners here. From your perch there as the global head of research, it's clear you have a great view of what's going on and a lot of insight into how we should be thinking about it. So thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Okay, well, as expected, that was a great conversation with Melinda McLaughlin. One of the things I loved most about that conversation is she just articulated, look, I'm an economist. To me, this is really about supply and demand. And in this market that she's now been working in for, I think she said about eight years, there's tons of data out there about supply and demand. And so we can think about what are the implications on pricing as well. So Jordan, what's your takeaway? Yeah, I don't have any of the credentials, but I'm also an economics <laughs> junkie. So uh, here's the latest data actually fresh off uh, the Q3 releases from the biggest real estate players. Uh, on the demand side, 50% drop year over year in absorption. On the supply side, over 170 million square feet added, which is a record delivery total. But the, the kicker, the nuance here is on pricing. Prices continue to rise despite that backdrop. And I think a little bit of that is part of where we've come from. We came from a place of record tightness. Now we're maybe moving back up towards a normalized trend line, but still pretty shocking to see the pricing action given this backdrop of supply and demand. Incredibly interesting, right? It is a question of supply and demand. But the thing I think that's missing from that conversation is your indicators on demand. There's inventory wind downs are occurring and continuing. The absorption is going down. So those supply is still at historically relatively lower levels. We're at sub 5%, 6% is systemic vacancy, according to a lot of the prognosticators. And that I think is an interesting point here is it's like unemployment. There's a systemic number that creates an equally balanced marketplace. And it looks like the brokers predict that it's somewhere higher than where we see it. Because what we believe to be true is that there's additional products and segments of supply that are in high demand and some that are in lower demand. And I think Melinda spoke to that as well in terms of different facility types, locations. Well, I think in support of, of your point, there is the sublease market, which while it does not represent a large portion of the total warehouse market, it is an indicator of what's happening. And the sublease activity in this past quarter was the highest it had been since, get this, the global financial crisis. So I think that is indicative of a market that is softer, at least, than where we came from. And it is bringing more options to potential occupiers, not just the traditional greenfield and, and the traditional new site, but also there is a sublease opportunity. That is a headline that is buried, the sublease market. I was running this against some of the biggest markets as well. Los Angeles proper sublease market is at 0.84%. It seems tiny. That's 3x where it, where it's been at any point in the last 10 years. 
sublease activity is way up. The supply of sublease activity is way up. We are seeing within the Flex network record amount of former customer and shippers that are coming in listing their space with us. We have 300 plus facilities of traditionally customer and shippers that want to be acting as 3PLs in this market. I think this is an entire iceberg that's sitting below the surface. Right. So Ben, what are you seeing inside the, within the Flex network data? What, what does that data tell you? Yeah. So there's some interesting compare and contrast here. So first I'd like to delineate that Melinda is talking most specifically to the direct lease market. And there are other approaches and products available out there to folks who are looking to access where our services in the space. So within our network, which is existing 3PL operators, when we've taken projects out to bid recently, we are seeing a great deal of supply in the marketplace. We took a project out in Jacksonville uh, that was for 125,000 square feet of capacity in an urgent need this last month. And within a day, we're able to get back three bidders, all with over a quarter million square feet of capacity to support that need. Uh, and that's not exceptional. We're seeing that across markets, especially to Melinda's point, inland markets, there's a great deal of oversupply. So what I see think to be true is when you combine that underutilized space within 3PLs, when you talk about the sublease market headlined by Amazon's attempts to get out of their own leases, there's a huge iceberg sitting under the water here of available capacity that's not showing up in vacancy rates. You know, just to kind of latch on to something that you're saying here, Ben, and back, you know, bringing this back to what I said at the top before the conversation about long and variable lags, you know, this is the fundamental challenge in the warehousing market. You know, if you take a step back from Q4 of 2020 all the way through 2022, there was a demand shock for warehousing space. Shippers gorged on space because they were reacting to consumer demand. Lo and behold, they bought too much space. The consumer demand impulse that they were reacting to has maybe normalized, but they're still sitting on this space. And so if you look at the historical absorption data in the warehousing market, starting in the first quarter of 23, there was a dramatic drop-off. The absorption rate is down 50 and 60% year over year uh, throughout the year of 2023, if you look on a quarter by quarter basis. And so this just speaks to the dislocation that happens with this traditional approach where you say, I'm going to look at demand and then I'm going to make a five, seven, 10 year decision around that demand and try to match up my supply. And by the way, I might be building something that takes me six months, 18 months, even two years to complete. And this is where you get all of the inefficiencies that we really see playing out today in the warehousing market. I think that's spot on, Jordan. This is also impacted by something that we're all feeling. And again, Melinda pointed out is just the, the state of the macro economy today is uncertain, right? Consumer demand is okay. The unemployment rate is okay, but there's not a lot of optimism out there. So what that means right now across many companies is, is kind of people are in a wait and see mode, um, which also says that, uh, you know, there's a lot of underutilized capacity out there uh, today under lease, but underutilized. I also thought it interesting that Melinda mentioned a couple of competing priorities in organizations where they have these long-term strategic goals about building in supply chain resilience, 
shortening the last mile, themes we've been talking about for a while. But then the economic indicators and interest rates are saying there will be a soft market through at least 2024. Hold off, wait and see. How do you balance those competing priorities? It's such a great question. And the way that Melinda phrased that I thought was spot on. And of course, we're seeing that with a bunch of our customers. And you know what I would offer and what we're seeing a lot of is don't push the pause button on the strategic initiatives. Uh, if there are ways to take a more incremental approach, a more test and learn approach to some of these strategic initiatives, the market that we're currently riding through could still support that. As long as those tests don't come with significant long-term bets or significant near-term capital outlays, you know that's a way to keep momentum behind that and potentially start to separate from those you're competing with. Yeah, and maybe just to button this up with a data point, um, you know, early in the cycle in the industrial real estate space is new ground breaks, new construction projects that begin. And that tells you a lot about what's going to happen over the subsequent quarters. And this is why uh, Melinda acutely zeroed in on this and, and many others say the market's going to remain loose through the end of 2024. I think a really interesting data point is that new ground breaks are down 65% year over year. And a lot of this, of course, is the product of what's happening with interest rates and the cost of capital going up. But just it, it speaks to a tightness that is going to be baked in, especially as we come to the end of next year. It was really important to differentiate that there's not one warehousing or industrial real estate market, right? There's geographic tranching, but there's also within particular markets in Los Angeles and the Inland Empire specifically. Uh, there's a lot of softness in the big new class A buildings out east of the city, but it's near to impossible to find facilities that can service that same day hyper delivery customer that we've talked about in previous episodes within Los Angeles itself. And we saw the same thing in our data. When you look at class A buildings, there, there's a lot of class A buildings that are underutilized, aggressively seeking bids, and older, smaller class B to C buildings, which I was frankly surprised that they would be running at a premium. It's more expensive to get that space. There's less capacity in that space. As more and more companies have really shortened that last mile, that one was the most interesting to me that aligned to what Melinda was saying, is that finding yourself a hyper-urban, hyper-speed fulfillment center might be more difficult than that big box on the edge of town. Jordan, any thoughts there? I can support this with a data point, which is usually my shtick. So if you take a look at the LA market and the vacancy rates there, you're really looking at a very tight market, which might seem surprising to people to know about Southern California. But if you zoom out a little bit and you take a look at the Inland Empire, you're at north of 7%. You're in one of the more systemically looser markets. So there is a lot of nuance relative to exactly where the building is. Are you close to a city center or are you in an area where uh, regulation and, and, frankly, land allows you to deploy more assets? And if you compare uh, the Inland Empire to Dallas-Fort Worth, you see the same thing. Matter of fact, pretty much every market in Texas is at north of 7%. And this is because there's been a tremendous amount of development activity. Um, but when you really get into tight and constrained markets, uh, Melinda brought up San Francisco, for example, you're still at sub 3%. So there is a lot of nuance based on the precise location 
And ultimately, what are the objectives you're trying to achieve? Is it a micro-fulfillment center or is it a larger omni-channel facility that can be set outside of the city? And Jordan, while I'm generally agreeing with you on that Texas statement, another interesting nugget is that Laredo, your cross-border location, is at under 2% vacancies. And there's zero new starts or active construction in McGowan next to it in terms of warehouse builds. So really excited at some point to start talking more about these nearshoring, reshoring plays, because I think there's something going on down south. Great correction, first of all, Ben. And that should tie in really nicely to some upcoming conversations we're going to have here on the podcast. So Ben, Jordan, what a great conversation. Ben, particularly appreciate your ability to bring some data insights from the Flex Network of operators. Uh, it really goes to show you, and, and Jordan, you added this perspective as well, that the state of the warehousing market is highly variable depending on what you're trying to get done, what your strategic initiatives are, what your cost constraints are, and kind of where in the market you're looking to add operations. I think it's definitely a nuanced picture. If we've learned nothing else, it's that uh, the answer is really what Melinda started with. It depends. So thanks again, guys. Uh, always a pleasure. Let's keep this conversation going. You've been listening to the Logistics Leadership Podcast presented by Flex. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast or join the Logistics Leadership Community, check out this episode's show notes and visit flex.com slash logistics leadership podcast. Keep the conversation going. Email us at leadershippodcast at flex.com. The Logistics Leadership Podcast features original music by Diaphonic. The show's producers are Robert Haskett and Adam Cappell. Here's a quick pro tip. Instead of chasing down the next episode, why not just follow the show and have it appear in your feed automatically? Thanks for joining us.